Yeah, so uh, just a couple of uh, little announcements to start out our meeting. Um, like she said, uh, those of you who want to get a hold of my uh, previous meeting that I did here when I was here three years ago, um, Animals, Ethics, and Christianity, it's a very good place to get it because that was one of the first places I did it in its new expanded form and whatnot. So Audioverse is a uh, very, very good place to find that. For those of you who are listening to this um, on Audioverse, who are not seeing this in person, um, you will want to note a couple things. The Ask the Animals website actually is, uh, has hyphens in between each of the words. So it's actually A-S-K hyphen T-H-E hyphen A-N-I-M-A-L-S. So it's Ask hyphen the hyphen animals. And so make sure you do that when you type it in. That is a uh, uh, reference site for our ministry. My wife and I, um, Ask the Animals uh, Productions is what we have called it. And uh, that deals with our nature presentations as well as our animals ethics and has uh, price lists and whatnot and information how to contact us. And so that is uh, a good source for those of you who want to get some of our material. So those of you who have heard my previous presentations in past years and heard me this morning will know that I talk about animals and I talk about animals all the time. That is my focus and that's my area of expertise. And uh, um, a lot has changed since I was here three years ago for me. I got married since then and have been traveling around with my wife and family since then. As we go across the United States, we're traveling usually half of the year, six or seven months of the year. And uh, each weekend we're at a different church in a different place as we go from here to there to everywhere. Um, I'm with my father, Dennis Preeby, and he holds his meetings. I hold these creation presentations wherever we go. And so I'm speaking virtually every week as we go around the United States. So this is a special stop though, to be able to stay here all day and have a full day's meetings and do brand new material. So it's something that I was looking forward to all spring. And now we're gonna get on with the rest of our presentation that we started this morning. So those, uh, I'm sure most of you are here with this morning, but uh, we're just going to be continuing on with the animal world, showing how the animal world is a wonderful demonstration of God's creative power in all the different ways that uh, he has made them. And so now we got stopped at this point. Now we're going to look at the Jaranuk. Now this is another unusual animal that most people uh, may have seen before in a nature film, but maybe not uh, heard the name. It's a uh, strange name. It's not a very familiar name to most of us. It is a type of African antelope and it is called Jaranuk, which is a uh, native name from over in Africa that means giraffe-necked. And so it's very obvious why they get they called that, because they have a very long neck, much longer than most antelopes of similar size. They're not a very large antelope, they're actually quite small. And they actually never eat grass. This guy right here is surrounded by absolutely no food. He can't eat any of that, that's not his food, even though a lot of antelopes do eat grass out in the uh, African uh, savannas. This guy is not actually gonna do any of that. He's gonna be looking for leaves on trees to eat, and that's his sole source of nourishment. He goes around the bushes and, and eats all the lower leaves off of the bushes, and that's where he gets his food source. Now this is uh, plenty of trees around there, that's great. But there are of course other antelopes which are out there eating the grass and the leaves and whatnot and pretty soon you know everybody's kind of competing for the same uh, bit of uh, leaf and pretty soon you're running out of leaves from the lower branches of trees. At that point most of the other antelopes will just put their head down and start eating the grass, it's no big deal. But this guy can only eat leaves and so if the leaves run out he's going to be in trouble. So at this point his special gift kicks in because once the leaves are gone from the lower reaches of the trees he does something no other antelope can do and that is stand up. 
So here he is standing up, bracing himself against the tree trunk, reaching leaves higher than any other antelope of his size can reach. Extra long neck, extra long reach of his whole body. He's able to reach into the upper branches of these trees and get stuff that uh, most other antelopes cannot get. Now you notice here, he is a single long rod from his feet all the way up through his hips, through his, uh, his, um, his uh, torso and up to his neck to the top of his crown. One long straight rod and that gives him perfect balance. And so not only can he stand up here and nibble on the leaves with perfect balance as he's there braced against the tree trunk, but once the leaves near the tree trunk are used up and only the leaves out at the outer branches are available, at that point, no problem. He just simply walks away and starts eating the branches out farther. He has such perfect balance that he can balance himself like a ballerina on his tiptoes and work his way around the outside of the tree, work his way to the outer branches, and they are able to get all the leaves that they want going about and getting the branches that nobody else can reach. So it's an amazingly well-built animal who's able to do this. No other animal has this particular skill. And so again, another example of the ways that God has made an animal very different and very special and unique so that it fits into its particular habitat niche and is able to do so in a way that is quite unusual from other creatures. One other odd little thing that has nothing to do with what we've been talking about, but these guys never drink any water. And so they never need to go find a water hole. They simply are able to get all the moisture they need from the plants, leaves that they're able to extract the moisture from. And so another interesting animal that uh, most people haven't heard of or known much about if they have seen it in a, in a nature program. Now, puffins. Now, first of all, here is a couple of penguins from the Southern Hemisphere. They are a very familiar animal to us because we've seen lots of documentaries on them, lots of nature programs, lots of movies made about penguins. It seems like penguins are extremely popular animals. In their little tuxedos, they seem to be quite adorable as they waddle across the icy landscape. And so we're, we're very familiar with the, the penguins in the world. They only live in the southern half of the world. They're only found in the southern hemisphere, even though not all of them live in ice and snowy conditions. Some of them live in quite warm conditions, but they're all found south of the equator. But up north, we have a completely different bird. Here's, here's another penguin still. Up north, we have a completely different bird that is very similar to the penguins of the southern hemisphere. They're quite different in a number of ways, but they're basically the equivalent of penguins. They live in the north in the Arctic Ocean, and they are the puffins. Now, there are three species of puffins found around the coasts of North America, Europe, and Asia and they are found in rocky coastal areas and they swim in the water and they waddle along the land just like a penguin does and they are brightly colored in black and white and a lot of uh, facial colors and whatnot. There are three kinds. One of them is called the horned puffin, one of them is called the tufted puffin, and then you have the Atlantic puffin. And so these three kinds are found way north, much farther than we are. A few will come down the coastlines and breed along northern California during the summertime, but mostly you have to go north and see them uh, much closer to the Arctic. They live in a rocky area where they can then land on the shoreline and they will then dig a burrow into the soft dirt and they will work their way down until they've dug a burrow three to nine feet deep. At the end of this burrow, they will lay their eggs and that's where they will hatch out their chicks and they will always come then and feed their chicks in these burrows. And so they're always tied to the shoreline and the sea because their food is in the ocean and their young will be raised on the shoreline. Now you notice that uh, these guys have webbed feet 
and this allows them to swim very easily and, and uh, just like a duck swimming through the water, able to propel them. This is the same as with a penguin. They have the webbed feet that allow them to kick their way through the water very efficiently, and so both are built very similarly in terms of being able to swim around underneath the water's surface. The one big difference is that puffins can fly. They have wings that are kind of stubby and kind of short, but they're able to power their way through the air. They have to flap them really quickly, but uh, they're able to actually fly very well, no problem whatsoever, which is quite different than a penguin, which has no ability to fly whatsoever. The penguins are the masters of the underwater ocean areas, swimming underneath the water like no other bird in the world. They have a very large horny bill, which they use to catch fish and, uh, in the, under, underneath the water. And just like that, the uh, puffins have a large horny bill, which serves the same function, catching fish underneath the water's surface. And so when they're ready to fly out from the shoreline, they're going to uh, take off, head out to sea, and when they get far enough out there, they land on the water's surface and dive underneath. They are a very buoyant bird, unlike a penguin which dives underneath the water and is quickly underneath because they are so heavy and, and, uh, and dense. These guys are very buoyant, almost like a duck, which is going to pop up to the surface very quickly, and so they're going to have to need to power their way underneath. And so to do that, of course, they have their webbed feet, which will help force them underneath the water. They're not like an anhinga. They don't soak up the water, so they have to constantly force themselves to stay underneath the water's surface. So here he is, flying underneath the water, basically powering his way through the water with his wings. And so basically what they're doing is flying underwater as well as flying above water with their wings. Now they're looking for these fish right here to catch. This is their typical food source of small fish that are schooling underneath there. When they find one that they are going to eat themselves, they will catch it and they will start to thrash it about until they have succeeded in killing it. And then they will swallow it down and they are then very satisfied with the fish that they have caught. However, if they are saving it for their chicks, if they need to take it back to their chicks to uh, feed to their chicks, at that point they will catch it and they will not thrash it up but will store it at the back of their bill, against their bottom of their bill. They will put it underneath their tongue, basically hold it in place, and then they will go off and catch another fish. After they've killed that one, they will then lay it against the first fish, put their tongue over it, hold it down, go off and catch another fish, lay it against the first two fish, and on and on it goes until they have caught and stored in their beak 10 to 12 little fishes stacking them up in little rows with their heads and bodies sticking out from either side of their bill, very neat and orderly. And once they've filled up their bill with fish, at that point they will then take off from the water surface and fly back to their burrow and feed their young. And in this way, they don't have to make multiple trips, one trip per fish. They're able to carry as many as possible in their bill in this way and, and uh, make it as efficient as possible. So when we look at these birds and they're going about their business, catching their uh, fish, uh, going uh, about their underwater lifestyle, Basically what you're looking at is a penguin which has the ability to fly because their basic lifestyle is the same. They basically have the same diet and habitat um, requirements, but they are basically able to do what the one thing that penguins are unable to do. And so they have the best of both worlds. And in terms of personality, I've watched these guys off the coast of Alaska in their flying around on the ocean and on the seashore, and they are the most winning personality. They are really charming little birds as they squawk to each other and carry on and, and tumble about. And they are just an adorable little creature. And so they have a lot of personality to them. They are often called the sea parrots because of their vocalness and their uh, colorfulness and, and whatnot. And like I said, they have the one ability that the famous penguins lack, and that is the ability to, uh, to uh, fly as well as swim. Now the sun bear is a, uh, has been nicknamed the honey bear. 
Now, we think of bears going out and eating from the honeycombs and whatnot, and a lot of bears love honey, but these guys really love honey. This, that's one of their main sources of food. They love honey, they love bees, they love bee larvae, they leave, love termites, any of these uh, types of nesting, material, uh, nesting insects. They just love to pillage their uh, uh, nests and get all the honey and, and, and larvae that they can out of it. Now, you notice they are very short-furred and like the bears we're more used to in North America. And that is because these guys live in a very hot climate. They are found in India and in Asia. And so they live in very hot tropical areas. And so they need short fur in order to be able to keep themselves from overheating and getting to the place where they're gonna be so sweltering. And so that's why their fur is so much shorter. But the most noticeable thing about these guys is they're pigeon-toed. When they're walking along, each foot they put in front of them is just about stepping on each other, and it doesn't look very well designed. It doesn't look like God came up with a real winner on this one. Because when you're walking along with these a very lumbering gait on the ground, they're very awkward looking, and it just doesn't seem right. So maybe God didn't quite make the best creature he could have with this one. But then you realize that these are not really designed to be on the ground. They're supposed to be up in trees, and that's where they spend most of their time. They like to climb up and down trees. They rest in trees. They sleep in trees. They get their food from trees, from the nests of insects and termites. And so when they put their paws around a tree trunk, all of a sudden it's perfectly well built to climb up and down a tree trunk. Those pigeon toes are exactly what they need in order to be able to dig their claws into the trunk and be able to then shinny up and down the trees very efficiently and easily. And so when you see them in a zoo, they don't look very efficient, they don't look very well built, but when you see them in their natural habitat going about their way that actually they're intended to, they are in fact extremely well built. In fact, God made them just right for what their lifestyle is. They have enormously long claws, and that again is to help them dig into the bark of trees as they're climbing, as well as digging open bee and termite colonies and be able to rip them open in that way using those very long, uh, those very long claws. Their tongue is also extremely long. It's about eight to 10 inches long. And once they've op cracked open a nest, then they can stick that long tongue in there and get all the insects and larvae out of it. And that's how they were able to reach these things that they would never be able to do. They're also fruit eaters, which seems strange for a bear, but they will go up and find nuts and fruits. And they're able to crack open an entire shell of a nut with their jaws. They have enormously strong jaws with which they're able to do this sort of thing that is just incredible, far more than you would ever think. So again, another example of God's ways of making animals special that sometimes when we look at them superficially, we kind of tend to think, eh, that's not so good. But when we see them the way they're supposed to be, they are in fact are very well built and put together. Now, for those of you who love little creepy crawly things, you're going to love this next section because we're going to look at some of the ones that are found in our backyards and our woods and fields that some people find just absolutely repulsive and gross. But when we look at some of these little creatures like this, we see some of the most amazing designs God has ever come up with. And this is one of my key things when we're talking about animals. It doesn't do as much good sometimes to talk about just the mammals and the birds and whatnot. Sometimes when you look at the insects and the other uh, invertebrates, we find some of God's greatest creations that you could possibly imagine. So here we have a, slug, a, a snail crawling along here with his shell. 
And they are very famous because they carry their home on their back. They're the ultimate creature able to have his moving transport because they live inside their shell and they crawl along wherever they need to. Basically, their entire body is one long foot that allows them to glide forward along the surface of whatever they're crawling along, and they're able in this way to move wherever they need to, up, down, upside down, on vertical surfaces, whatever. And so they're able basically one long foot with their face up here and their body tucked away inside the shell. Their shell actually gets bigger as they grow. They start out with a very small shell at the center and they keep adding segments to the shell as they get bigger. And so they're actually increasing the spiral of their shell as they get older and older. Now you look at this shell and wow, it's a nice big shell. This is actually half the size of a dime. And so it's a very tiny shell. This is a snail that's found on the north slope of one mountain in Arkansas, and that's the only place in the world it lives. And so there are very specific ranges for some of these creatures that they are found in only a few very narrow areas. Now, the one rule about these guys is they have to stay moist. They have to stay in places where they're going to keep their bodies wet at, and, at all times. And so that's why they have a shell, because if it gets too dry, they can retreat into it. But when it gets wet enough for them to be active, they can stick it out and crawl around on the ground. And there's no problem whatsoever, as long as they stay moist enough. Their skin has to stay moist or they will die. So here they are crawling along, doing their thing. They have their eyes at the tips of these long stalks, one eye per stalk, and they're able to wave them around. They can't see very much. They can just only can see uh, right in front of them, light and dark. They don't have very good vision but they do have good um, eyes for what they need. Now they're going around looking for plant material because they're vegetarians and so they're looking for uh, any kind of live or dead plants that they can use to eat and they will come across a plant and they will start to rasp it with a very rough tongue on the underside of their mouth. And here's their tongue right here. Here's basically their big foot and there's their antenna and right here is where their mouth and tongue is. And they will scrape that tongue against whatever plant material they are eating and pretty soon it's all roughed up to the point where it's coming into their mouth. And here is one eating and here he's worked a hole in the uh, inside of this plant. And that's what you go back and find in your garden because all the leaves have been eaten by your snails back there because this is what they've been doing, scraping off the vegetation to be able to digest it. Now in places where it dries out for a good, long, for a good chunk of the year, um, these snails have the ability to basically hibernate, estivate in their shells until wet weather comes again. This one I photographed in Big Bend in, in Texas and right near the Mexican border and it gets very hot there. It's a desert area and so whenever it gets too hot for them to be able to function, they withdraw themselves into their shell. They basically secrete a glue around the outside of this shell so that they glue themselves to the under of whatever they're attached to. No moisture escapes from their shell or from this uh, sealant on the front and then they will wait it out until the rain comes again and moistens up the sealant and allows them to be able to break out again and go about their business because now the wet time of year has come again. So they're very much dependent upon wet conditions whether it's for part of the year or during the night or wherever it happens to be. They have to stay wet at all times. Now the one thing that Another, another thing that gardeners notice when they go in their backyard and look around and see all these snail holes in their plants, they will also notice something else where the snails have been crawling around during the night. And that is a glistening trail of slime that has been left behind by these guys wherever they happen to be going. And that is not just because they leave a mess because they're annoying, but this is actually a vital component of their existence. As they're crawling about everywhere they go, they leave behind a lot of slime. 
This is because as they are moving forward, their underside of their foot is actually exuding slime. It is actually filling in all of the minute depressions on the ground in front of them, which allows them to glide their body over this slime trail and avoid the kind of roughness that would normally occur if they didn't have this slime trail. And so as they're moving forward, they, you can see here he's creating his own highway that he has left behind here as he's moving forward. It is basically the same principle as if you were driving your car along and your car is automatically filling in the potholes for you as you drive. <laughs> this would be a valuable function that a lot of us would really pay some money for if we had it available in cars. And these guys have that built into them automatically because wherever they're crawling, they're filling in the divots in front of them wherever they happen to go. And so this is great for them because they're able to smooth the path in front of them. But that's a lot of energy. That's a lot of resources you're putting out wherever you go. Wherever you're crawling to, you're putting in the slime um, uh, resources. So if they can conserve their slime, they will. And so whenever they lay down a trail of slime, they tend to come back the same way. And other snails come across these slime trails and they use them themselves and they don't have to put down slime. They don't have to waste any material of their own. And so all these snails are reusing each other's trails. Not only that, but they're also putting down chemical signals down onto these trails so that the next snail that comes along can read in the slime trail who has come before. If it's someone who's ready to mate, if it's a larger, smaller snail, whatever, a different species, they're able to communicate with each other using their slime trails. So instead of having a phone to communicate, they talk with slime. And that seems very weird and disgusting to us, but that's the way that they were made. And so with the snail group of creatures, we have a very interesting way for these guys to function, which is very alien to us in all of these different parts. Now the second group of animals we're going to look at here are the slugs. Now slugs are basically the same as snails except for the shell has been removed. They don't have a shell to retreat into, and so they're completely exposed at all times. Their entire body is open to the elements. And so these guys have to be able to stay moist, and they have nowhere to retreat to. So these are much more dependent on moisture conditions. They have to be in an area that stays wet for most of the time, or else they're not going to be able to function. So these guys are very, very sensitive to how much moisture is in the air, how much moisture is in the, and they will always take off and head for shelter before they get true dried out because they don't want to die out there because they'll dry out. And so here we have our very famous banana slug. This is the slug that is our largest slug in North America. It's a native slug. It's found in our Pacific Northwest forests. It's found in the redwood forests up along the coast from all the way in California. We just saw one in the Big Sur area on our way down here. And they are just, wherever you find redwoods, you find banana slugs. Now, when researchers were looking at banana slugs a few years ago, they said, hmm, I wonder if the banana slugs are eating the baby redwoods. And they started to put up, they put a plot up of little baby redwoods and they enclosed a bunch of slugs in there with them to see if the slugs would eat the baby redwoods. And they found that the slugs ate everything but the baby redwoods. They would not touch the redwoods at all. And so with banana slugs going about their business, they're actually helping the redwoods. They're giving the redwoods a head start in life because the um, trees do not have to compete with all the other plants when they're tiny little seedlings because the slugs have eaten all those. So when we see these 300-foot trees of the redwoods in the Pacific Northwest in Northern California, we can thank the banana slug gardeners for that because they're the ones who are helping these redwoods get a head start in their life that they would never get otherwise. A very good job indeed. 
Now, when we look at these slugs, again, they have the same sort of body structure that the snails do. They have the antenna sticking out on the front, at the tips of which are their eyes. Here is one who is using his rasping tongue to scrape away at the underside of a mushroom. He is here eating this uh, plant material, this, this fungi material. And so they're able to see using these little pinpricks, uh, specks of eyes at the tips of those things. But underneath those, just like a snail, they have another pair of feelers which point downward. The ones with the eyes point outward, the ones with the, uh, these down here point downward. Now those do not have any eye spots at all, they cannot see with those, but those are chemical receptors, just like the fish that we were looking at this morning. Chemoreceptors that are able to actually analyze what's going on in front of them using these little feelers touching whatever is in front of them on the ground. And so they're able to feel just like the snails you know, with their feelers knowing what is happening around them. Now this is something that is hidden by the shell of snails. Right here is how they breathe. Now normally you can't see that in a snail, but with a slug it's very obvious. They have a large hole in the side of their body which they can open or contract depending on how much oxygen they need, and that will allow oxygen to pass inside here to where they're able to use it to breathe on the inside. That's basically, they have a lung on the side of their body, an equivalent of it. And they are able to expand it when they need to bring in more oxygen in or contract it when they need to close it off. And so that's another unique feature of snails and slugs that most animals have quite a different system from. This right here is called a furrowed slug because he has these very furrowed looking back that they're able to, uh, you know, almost like little projections sticking out there. This is not native to North America, but it's very common up in the groves of trees up in the Northwest. And this is the same uh, type of animal, solid black. Very strange uh, little animal because when he gets into trouble, when something comes along and bothers him, he actually contracts himself up as tight as he possibly can until he is a tight little arched ball. And then he begins to sway side to side for no apparent reason just waiting for the danger to go away. I'm not sure how that's a good defensive tactic, but they always do it when anything ever bothers them. But this right here is the best defensive tactic of any slug that I've come across. These are called tail-dropping slugs. They are found north of, uh, up in Oregon and Washington and British Columbia, very dependent on the uh, very wet forests up there. They're a native species. And if something attacks them and goes after them, right here at this point, they can actually self-amputate their tail and they can leave it behind for the predator to eat, and then they will be able to crawl away and escape from the predator and allow themselves to regrow their tail another day, where they can then start over and grow their new tail, and uh, they will live to survive until the next time a predator comes along and attacks them. So it is a very useful defensive measure, just like lizards who will lose their tail and be able to escape in the same process. So when we look at the snails and slugs, the creepy crawlies out in the woods, out in our gardens, and we always assume they're just the worst ever creature you could possibly imagine. We are seeing, in fact, a very intricately well-built, complicated little creature that most of us have never even dreamed of are as intricate as they, could, as they actually are. Now, sea otters are a very charismatic group of creatures found in the oceans of the world. Now, this right here is not a sea otter. This is a river otter. Now, there are uh, quite a few different species of freshwater otters found around the world. They are a variety of sizes. Some of them are quite small. Some of them are quite large. They all have the same basic behavior. They have the, the same diet of fish. They swim around in freshwater rivers and ponds and lakes looking for fish to catch. They are extremely playful animals, always playing with each other, usually in family groups. 
They are a very active social animal. Some of the smallest are like this one found in Asia. They're only like a foot and a half long at full size. Some of them are quite large. Some of the ones in South America get to be about six, seven feet long, including their very long tail. And those are about the longest, largest freshwater otters we have. All of them, like I said, basically function the same way. It's just a matter of where each one lives. But they have a relative in the ocean which is quite different because he's living in salt water. The sea otters that are found in the world's seawater areas are extremely different from the ones found on the land. And they will have a lot of different characteristics because of one major difference. They live in salt water instead of living in fresh water. And that affects everything they do, as we will see. So here is still a river otter. Here is a sea otter. Now these guys are enormously cute animals. They have a very large size, they're about 30 to 100 pounds, depending on the individual. They, there's only one species of sea otter found in the world. They are found along coastlines, along our California coast, all the way over to Russia. They, are very, they used to be extremely common until fur trading came along and killed off most of them. They virtually were extinguished, except in a few isolated spots. They have rebounded very well off the coast of California. And a week and a half ago, Delise and I were on the uh, Point Lobos uh, State Park, just south of Monterey Bay, and we were watching these guys playing in the surf and having a good time and swimming around and diving and just really having a wonderful time. It's the best place to watch sea otters anywhere I've seen on the West Coast. Very, very good place to do it. But they are extremely furry animals. They are much furrier than their cousins on land and the, in the freshwater areas. A sea otter has one million hairs per square inch. It is the densest furred, furred animal of any mammal in the world. It has denser fur than any mammal in the world. And so that is an extremely dense plush coat and that is to keep them warm because most sea animals like seals and whales and whatnot have blubber to keep them warm. The water is very cold in the ocean. It's gonna seep out all the warmth out of a mammal. And so these guys have to be able to stay warm in order to be able to function. And so there, here he is with his dense coat of fur. It's so dense that the water never touches their skin. And this prevents them from losing any body heat to the outside, and so they don't get hypothermia like we would in the same situation. But there's a problem with that because a mammal at all times is going to be losing his fur, um, usually a lot at a time, as anyone with a cat or a dog knows. It's shedding season, and all of a sudden you got cat hair everywhere. And so that is because they're losing it all because it's getting warmer and they need to regrow it. And so, I mean, that's a very serious problem if you're this guy, because if you lose all your fur, well, then you're going to freeze to death. You're not going to have time to regrow your fur. So like uh, any other mammal, these guys are actually losing a few hairs at a time all year long. And they're constantly shedding a little bit at a time, so they never lose all their fur at once. And so God has given them this ability to be able to lose enough fur at one time to be able to survive the cold all the time. The other problem with this whole system is it has to be kept very, very clean. And so a good chunk of their time each day is spent grooming their fur. And so they're always cleaning their fur, licking it off, making sure it's spotless, no grease, no dirt is on it, and that allows them to be able to keep it clean and, and, and hypothermic, you know, repelling the cold at all times. And so it's a very useful thing for them to do. Now, once they're ready to eat, they're going to dive down underneath the water, swim down to the bottom of the sea, and they'll collect down there anemones, crabs, abalones, all sorts of shellfish, crabs. That's what they get their food. But a lot of those creatures have really thick shells and really stern defenses that you're not going to be able to get into unless you're able to break it open. 
And so when they come up to the surface with their food, if they know that they're going to need to crack it open, they will also grab a large flat rock. Food in one hand, flat rock in the other arm, and they will swim back up to the surface where then they will lay the flat rock on their chest, and then they will take the food and crack it until it smashes open. And just this last week, we were watching one just smashing it as quick as he could, and water was splashing everywhere, and he was very energetically smashing his food to bits. And then say, break it open. If they are wanting, if there was a really good rock, if it really fit well, they'll often hold it under their arm and go find some more food, and they won't even drop it. And so they're actually a tool-using mammal that they're able to, in this way, get their food, get their tool, crack it open, and use it for later. They're very intelligent in that way. They are going down there using their paws to crack open, to pry off various shellfish off the bottom of the floor. They have retractable claws. They have very uh, uh, sensitive pads on the underside of their feet with which they're able to uh, pick off the food from the sides of the, of the, uh, the, the, the seafloor. Once they are ready to go to sleep, they do something else that's quite unusual. They go to the surface. And before they go to sleep, they wrap themselves up in the tips of the kelp fronds that are attached to the bottom. The kelp fronds have big anchors down there and they trail up to the surface of the water. And they wrap the kelp fronds around their body until they're tied up very nicely, anchored to the seafloor. And then they will go to sleep and they will be guaranteed of waking up pretty much where they started because it's like an anchor holding them down. They don't have to worry about drifting out to sea. When the babies are born to the mothers in the springtime, they are so buoyant and so lightweight, they can't even dive under the water. They cannot get themselves underneath the water surface. And when the mother dives down to get food, she wraps them up in kelp, ties them to the seafloor so that she can come back to the exact spot and find where they are. Otherwise, she'd never know where to look because they would be drifting off through the oceans. When we were at Point Lobos, we were watching little babies with their mother. One of them was swimming by on her back, and the baby was sitting on her chest and traveling off to other place. It was a very, very enjoyable day of watching these guys do their thing. So when we look at the sea otter, we see one difference. The fact that they live in salt water affects everything they do. Their behavior, their physical structure, the way they go about their daily life. They are <clears throat> able to drink seawater, salt water, and their kidneys are so well built that they filter out all the salt out of it and allow them then to use that now purified water to be able to function. Without that, they would never know of access to fresh water. So all of these features built into them allow them to function in the sea, which none of their land-living cousins would be able to do. And uh, in the process, they are actually one of the most engaging, enjoyable creatures to be able to watch anywhere um, that you could imagine. All right, so now we're back to land otters and the ones that are found in uh, freshwater areas of the, of the world. The other thing that has become very interesting with the sea otters is something that we actually were able to witness ourselves. Back before people came to North America and started killing them off, they were a shore-bound creature. They actually lived on the shore. They would swim out and get their food. They would raise their young on the shore. They were very much on land a lot. But once they started to be killed off by all of the fur traders who wanted to use them for, for their pelts, they actually, in order to survive, became a totally aquatic animal. They never came to shore. They gave birth, raised their young out in the ocean. They never functioned again on the land. Now that they have been protected, now that their numbers are rebounding, now at this point the sea otters are actually returning to their old ways, very slowly and very erratically. A few are being seen on shore, sleeping, having their young on shore, some, different things like that. But it's not very often you see that. And a week ago, 
my wife and I watched that happen as one crawled up onto the shore, cleaned himself off, and curled up and went to sleep in the sunlight. It was something that the people at the park had never even seen themselves. It's a very rare occurrence to be able to come across that. But it is a very special thing, showing off how they will adapt their behavior to meet changing circumstances of outside forces. All right, now we're going to look at a bird that is found throughout the world called a jacana. It's, it's not really found in North America, although it does barely come up and nick us down in the corner of Texas. But uh, these guys are found in South America, Central America, Africa, Asia. They're called the jacana. They are basically a wading bird like um, sandpipers and shorebirds and that sort of thing. But you would notice the first thing that uh, they have enormously large feet, much longer toes than you would expect. This is their normal habitat, out in the middle of a swamp or marsh where there's a lot of water lilies growing upon the water surface. Now, the water lilies here are not very sturdy. You know, they're just, uh, you know, strong enough to support themselves on the water surface. But if an animal tried to walk across it, it's going to sink underneath the water surface, and that's not going to be very efficient to cross, uh, cross them. But these guys have such enormously long toes that it actually distributes their weight so evenly that they are able to walk upon the lily pads without sinking them. And so they walk all across the lily pads. It's basically the same as walking on land for them for these birds. And they're able to reach all the shore, the, all the surface insects that other birds, which would not be able to walk out there, would be able to reach. And so they're walking all over these lily pads everywhere they go, thanks to their feet. Their feet are what makes them special and makes them unique and allows them to move to places that other birds would never have access to. Now, when breeding time comes and these birds lay their eggs, most birds like this are going to be forced to go to the shore and lay their eggs on an island or something in the middle of the marsh. But this bird actually builds a nest attached to the floating plants. And they build it in such a way that if the water level raises or falls, the nest raises or falls with it. They attach it loosely to the plant so that it can go up and down with the raising or lowering of the water level. Now they lay their eggs inside that nest and they guard them there and protect them just like any other bird. But every once in a while, something will happen. A wave will come by or some disturbance or an, an alligator might swim by and knock the nest or something will happen. And the eggs will get knocked out of the nest. For most birds, that is going to be a fatal incident that's going to kill the eggs because the eggs are actually absorbing oxygen through their shells. And so if you put an egg under the water, the chicken side will die. It can't breathe inside there even though it doesn't have lungs yet, but it's absorbing the oxygen through the walls of the shell. But this egg is quite special. When it falls into the water, it floats above the water's surface enough so that it is able to prevent itself from being submerged and the oxygen is still able to enter the shell until the parent arrives in time to see that its eggs have been knocked out and then it's able to scoop the eggs up, put it back in the nest and go about incubating it as if nothing ever happened. And so unlike any other bird, which would normally have the same problem, these birds are able to have eggs that float and allow them to survive in this very specific and unusual habitat. Pseudoscorpions. Does anybody here know what a pseudoscorpion is? Nobody knows what a pseudoscorpion is. All right, first of all, we'll look at scorpions because this is something we all are familiar with. These guys are very distinctive. Everybody knows what a scorpion looks like. They are found in the deserts of the world. They are found in the forests of various parts of North America. We are, have a lot of different species of scorpions. Their favorite habitat is the desert. And they all have very distinctive shapes. They got their long claw arms sticking out here. Their head is up here. And they have their eight, pair, their eight legs along here. And of course, their very famous 
scorpion stinger that they have at the very end, which contains a bulb of venom with which they're able to defend themselves or attack their prey. So this is their very distinctive shape that we're all familiar with. They have their eyes right here. Those are those little black dots right at the top. And their mouth parts are up here with which they're able to feed upon other insects. They go about catching other insects. That's how they get their food. And here is a scorpion underneath a black light. This is when you shine the black light upon a scorpion, it will glow. The surface of its skin reflects the light in such a way that you have this very distinctive glowing uh, uh, color to it. And actually, this is how you go about finding scorpions in the desert. You take a black light with you, you shine it on the ground, and whenever you see something glowing, you got yourself a scorpion. And so it's a very interesting way to find an animal that's usually nocturnal and hard to find. This right here is the same exact animal that this one is under normal lighting. This is the same one that I photographed with normal lighting as well as photographed with it under black lighting and shows what a difference it is when you see them with natural light as opposed to black light. So this is an animal we're all familiar with knowing what the shapes are, but here we now have a pseudoscorpion. And it is called a pseudoscorpion because it mimics a scorpion. It looks like a scorpion and that's what its name means. It has the same kind of pincher arms that are reaching out forward. It has the same kind of head. And over here, however, it doesn't have the same tail. There is no stinging tail sticking out here, and that is their major difference that uh, sets them apart from a regular scorpion. Now, a pseudoscorpion is poisonous, but for two reasons it's not dangerous to us. The first reason is that it has no interest in causing us damage. It's too small to do us damage. And here you can see one next to my fingernail. And this is a fairly large pseudoscorpion that I'm photographing here. They are so small that they have no capability of causing us any damage. They cannot pierce our skin. They cannot inject any venom into us. And therefore, they are totally harmless to people. They are incapable of doing us any damage. They are, however, very poisonous to their prey, which is insects smaller than themselves. Now, when we think about that, that's a whole amazing um, miracle in and of itself that there's anything smaller than this guy. But yes, there is. They're going around catching insects that they are actually smaller than they are. They do so with their front arms. These are the same looking type of arms as the scorpion. However, this is where these guys store their venom, right here and right here. They keep their venom in their claw hands, and when they grab a smaller insect, they inject the venom directly into the insect with those claw hands, and that will paralyze the food, kill it, and then they will be able to eat it in, without any kind of a struggle. And so they are very much an aggressive predator too, but they're just on such a smaller scale that we have a hard time even relating to them or even noticing when they're around. They're actually quite common, but most of the places that they live in, we never are really looking around for such little creatures, and we don't usually notice them. Now, some of these guys are blind. Some of them have two eyes. Some of them have four eyes and can see quite well. And so when you come across one of these little creatures, if you move your finger toward them and they back away, you know they can see you. If they don't even move, you can pretty much figure they are blind and can't see you. And so they have a very uh, difference depending on the species. Also, they have silk glands in their mouth area with which they're able to spin silk like a caterpillar, like a spider, and they use that to build themselves a little home where they're able to put themselves together a little shelter and then they will then crawl inside those shelters and go about their business of, protect, of, of sleeping or, or de, uh, protected from predators and that's how they move around and get themselves a place to live by spinning silk in their galleries. Now, 
Here was a moth that I was photographing in Tennessee. I was taking pictures of a variety of different moth species on the walls of a night-lighted building. And after I took this one picture, I was looking at the picture on my camera, and I said, what is that little weird bump? And I blew up my camera, and I noticed there, sitting on his hind leg, attached by one arm, was a pseudoscorpion hanging on the right hind leg of this moth. Now, he's not trying to eat this moth. He's not trying to poison him. He's not injecting any venom into this moth. He's just holding on because when this moth flies off, this guy becomes a flying taxi for this little pseudoscorpion. They fly off to a whole new spot, and this little guy goes with them and lands in a whole new area that he would never be able to reach otherwise. And so they are a very uh, well-built to fly along with this little guy, hanging by one arm from dear life until the moth lands on his next spot. This is not something you normally expect to find hanging from the side of a moth. But this is their way of transporting themselves, and I just found that truly an amazing picture that I didn't even realize when I took the picture. Now here is a click beetle. There are, these guys are found across North America. This one I was looking at was found in the Sierra Nevada. And I was watching this click beetle, taking some pictures of the click beetle. Everything was, you know, normal insect, fine, that's nice. At the point when I was done with him, I let him go. He raised up his wing cases, which cover his entire rear abdomen and his wings. You can see a little bit of his wings sticking out there. Raised up his wing cases, started to spread his wings to take off. And right at that moment, I noticed there was something very strange underneath his wing cases. I immediately grabbed him, held onto him, tried to look underneath, which I really couldn't do because if you try to lift these things up, they're so tight against your body, you're going to break them. So I didn't want to do any damage. So I just waited a few moments, let him loose again. He raised up his wing cases about to fly. And I realized that what I was seeing was covering his entire abdomen from here to here, about a, a colony of about 30 to 40 pseudoscorpions living underneath the hind wing cases of this large beetle. Now, what are they doing under there? Are they parasites? Are they causing them problems? What is their purpose under there? Well, I did some research and found out that these guys are a very beneficial aspect to this particular type of beetle because they eat the tiny parasitic mites that live on beetles. And so this guy provides shelter and transportation for the pseudoscorpions, and in return, the pseudoscorpions keep this guy free of parasites. And so it works well for both parties. And so it's a very strange thing, again, to find. It doesn't seem like a very fun lifestyle to live underneath the wings of a beetle flying from place to place, but that's what these guys call home. So when we look at the tiny creatures, and you're never going to find a more tiny creature than the pseudoscorpions, you are seeing another way that God has made intricate and amazing detail in some of the smallest animals we can imagine. And this is why I love to look at the small creatures, and I love to investigate the tiny little animals found throughout the world, because some of them have the best and the most amazing designs of any animal we could care to mention. A lot of people study the big animals because they're easier to find and whatnot, but these guys you can find everywhere in your backyard, and they have some of the best and most amazing specializations that God has ever made. Tadpoles. Now, last time when we talked about the... Is it... Wow, it's... Is it 5.30 already? That, that went really fast. Okay. How about that? I'm actually, I'm going to actually skip forward on this because we're not going to have enough time and I do not want to keep us here too long. 5.23? But it, yeah, I know. But <laughs> you, do you want to ask questions or do you want to look at pictures? <laughs> Both, yes. You don't want to be here till 10 o'clock? Yes. Um, all right, we'll do one more and then we'll skip uh, some more. All right, so now uh, last time when we talked about the uh, uh, God's amazing miracles of creation, we talked about butterflies and moths. 
Now, butterflies and moths transform themselves into the adults from caterpillars, and it's one of the greatest miracles of God's power we could ever imagine. That was in our previous uh, presentation three years ago. But they hide themselves when they transform inside cocoons, inside chrysalis. They don't let you see what's going on. They just transform where nobody can see them, hidden away. Frogs and toads go through virtually the exact same miracle transformation that butterflies and moths do. However, they let you watch them do it, and so they're very accommodating, and so it's quite an interesting thing to watch this process take place. When they start off, the mother will come along and lay her eggs near a wet source, whether it's a water, fresh water um, of some sort. Out of those eggs will hatch tadpoles. Now, all tadpoles look basically the same with each other. There's very hard to tell species apart, but they all have this basically round oval shape with a tail sticking out. And that's the tadpole classic shape. Now, they can be quite common in a river or pond or whatnot, wherever they happen to be growing up. They get bigger as they grow. They get larger, but they basically say, assume the same shape. They never really change until they're ready to transform. Some places you get high density, like you can see right here. Now, when the time comes, they've gathered enough energy, they've gotten old enough, now it's time to transform themselves into their adult version of themselves. And so at this point, now the miracle transformation starts. They can get quite large at this point, ready to transform, but at this point, little buds begin to appear right at the base of their tail, and pretty soon those buds start to grow out and they assume their hind legs shape, even though they're still quite stubby and small. That's all they have right now, just hind legs, and they're still swimming around with tails. They're still breathing with gills because they're underwater all the time, and they're going about their business still, even though this is now starting to grow. Pretty soon, the legs are getting fairly well developed, and at that point, little buds form up here along the sides of their body, and pretty soon, out of those little buds grow the front legs. And so now you got the hind legs basically ready to go, the front legs are coming along, and now the head and body begin to transform themselves into the adult shape. At this point now, it becomes flatter, there, it assumes more like the adult look to their face and whatnot. And also, one last transformation part, their tail starts to shrink because the actual cells of their tail are being basically cannibalized by the baby to transform into the legs and the feet and whatnot because they're transforming inside their body, moving cells around, moving energy around from place to place until they can transform their entire body. Also at this point, they are now growing lungs inside their body because they're gonna be air breathers very quickly. And pretty soon they stick their nose up out of the water and start to breathe a lung full of air and they will never need to use their gills again. And from this point forward, their gills shrink and die away and disappear. And now they're going to be a fully air breathing creature. Their legs have fully grown out. Their tail shrinks to nothing. And now they be, assume the adult shape that they will carry the rest of their life. At this point, some will leave the water, some will stay in the water, depending on the species, but they are all now adults ready to go about their life. So they go through this entire miracle transformation in front of us. They transform themselves step by step, allowing us to see how a very specific type of animal can transform itself into a very, very different type of animal right in front of our very eyes. And this is truly a miracle that God has worked out. He has made these animals to transform, and it is also one of the big problems of evolution, how this sort of process could evolve where two totally different animals basically are able to evolve from one common stock. A very serious problem indeed of evolutionary ideas. But these little guys have a lot of personality, a lot of charisma, and they allow you to watch them transform themselves from one stage to another.
Yeah, we're going to skip now to the end because we do not want to go too long. Anyone who wants to see the entire presentation, including the ones I'm skipping, that will be available tonight as a DVD. So that is something for those of you who want to see everything. All right, this bird right here is a miracle of memory. When we look at this bird, it is the Clark's Nutcracker. It is found up at the tops of mountains, the tops of the Sierras, the tops of the Rockies, cold areas, very active in cold weather areas. They are looking for pine cones to eat, specific types of pine trees. And when the pine cones are ripe, giving off their seeds for their own reproduction, that's when these birds get their food because they store these seeds by the thousands. Now they come across a pine cone, they have a pouch on their inside of their throat where they're actually able to swallow up to 80 seeds into their throat. They hold it in the pouch and then they fly off after they fill their pouch up and they start to cache these seeds in hiding places around their territory. Now the territory of a pair of these birds is about 12 square miles. Into that territory they will start to put down caches about 5 to 10 seeds per cache. They will then fly off to the next one, put a few more down, hide that patch, go on to the next one, hide a few more until they've run out of seeds. They'll go back and collect another batch of seeds, start to go off and hide it again. And this way they go around collecting seeds and stashing them. In this process, they will establish up to 9,500 caches per pair of birds. Up to 33,000 seeds will be stored over the course of the summertime uh, uh, collecting period. So all of this is a very high volume of material that they are now putting down. Once they've put it down, all right, now they go back and get more and oh, there's no more. The seeds have stopped producing. It's the end of the season producing time for these seeds. So at this point, now you're out of luck if you have no seeds available. So now they go off and start looking for the seeds that they have cached. Now you have to remember where you've stored 9,000 different caches in your 12 square mile territory. And that's where your memory it better kick in or else you're going to be going very, very hungry and you're not going to survive very long. So now you're going out, you're get, collecting your seeds from your caches, and now winter time comes and the snow falls on the ground. And now your, stores, your stored seeds are hidden underneath three feet of snow. But that's okay because they can find them even hidden underneath three feet of snow. They can recognize the places where they have cached them, and they're able to, in this way, find all the seeds that they have stored. Yeah? Yes. Um, they have to memorize the, okay, the question was, how do they know, uh, how, what is their memory coming from? They are remembering the location. They're remembering the tree shapes, the boulders, the rock shapes. So they're actually remembering what the place looks like. And so they have a mental picture of it in their head and their in the general location that they know they've stored seeds. And so they have to have basically a photographic memory. Yeah. I was wondering, are the pine seeds? <laughs> That's a very good question that I don't nutritionally have an answer for. Whether or not the pine seeds increase your memory and whether it's helping to help them me their memory, I can't even begin to answer the nutritional requirements of that, but uh, it could very well be. 
So now they've laid down their stores, they're finding them all winter, and now springtime comes. Now springtime is an important time of year for birds because it's now time for them to reproduce. Now at this point, they lay their eggs, just like any other bird. Mother sits on the eggs, just like any other bird. And the, she has a brood patch on her chest, like every other bird. And this is where the feathers on her chest will disappear during the breeding season and allow bare skin to come in contact with the eggs so that she can then transfer her heat directly to the cold eggs, keep them warm. Now this is great because all female birds have this that need to keep their eggs warm, but male birds don't have that. And so the male is out looking for food and he gets all the seeds that he can find because he's cached all these seeds. But she has cached half the seeds and he doesn't know where she's cached her half of the seeds. And so if he was the only one out getting food, they would probably run out of food because she can't help him find the seeds that she has stored. So this is a very serious problem that has been solved by God's providence. The male bird comes up to the female, the female gets off the nest, she flies away and looks for her seeds that she has stored, the male sits down, and with his own brood patch, he keeps the eggs warm. It is one of the only male birds in the world that has a brood patch that can keep the eggs transfer warm, continuing even though he's the male and most male birds cannot do that. And so God has given to these animals the ability for them both to share the duty equally of collecting food, raising the young, keeping the eggs warm. And so it's a very equal partnership that they're able in this way to provide enough food for themselves and be able to raise their young in the springtime. Yeah, it could be. I'm not sure if they have the if the male has a brood patch or not. Uh, that's uh, I've. Yeah, that could be. I, I've never investigated that if the male has the brood patch on that. All right. So now there's one thing that some people who come to my meetings complain about: too many creepy crawlies, too many insects, too many snails and slugs, too many ugly little animals. We need more pictures of cute animals. <laughs> Not enough mammals, not enough birds. Come on, show us the cute animals. Let's, let's have more cute animals. So that's a complaint that I often get from some people. So for those people who feel that way, we are now going to look at one of the cutest animals you could ever imagine. This is a pika, and this is a relative of rabbits. It doesn't have long ears like a rabbit. It has very short ears because it lives in cold climates when it needs to retain its heat, but it is actually a very small relative of the rabbits. Now this guy right here is found in high mountain areas, the same kind of places that the Clark's Nutcracker is found. You often find the two together. Very cold, rocky areas in places that have a lot of open rock slopes where they can find their homes. They live underneath these boulder slopes. They go crawl underneath the rocks and that's where they will find their place to live. Now these guys are very sensitive to warm weather. They cannot live where it's warm at all. If you expose one of these creatures to temperatures higher than 76 degrees for more than a few hours, they are going to keel over dead. They have to stay cold all their life in places that uh, are very rugged and places that are very exposed to the winter elements. Now, when they're running around in the summertime, there's plenty of green material available because that's, hey, it's summer, there's a lot of growth, everything is great, and so they're collecting as much food as possible to eat. But in wintertime, which lasts about eight or nine months of the year, that green vegetation is not going to be available. And so they're going to need to have food sources to last them the whole year, or they're going to need to move away like other animals will migrate, or they're going to need to hibernate, going to sleep like a marmot, so they'll sleep out the cold winter months. These guys do neither of those things. They do not 
hibernate. They do not migrate. They have to have enough food to last them through the whole year. So if you're walking amongst pika habitat and you're listening to their shrill calls or you see a dashing pika from here to there, you want to look for this particular feature because this is called a haystack, a pika haystack. You will notice some of the vegetation here is brown, some of it's green. And that's because the pika has been collecting green vegetation as much as he can carry, and they are very fast little bounding creatures running around, mouthfuls of green vegetation as they dash about with it, and they will pile it up into these haystacks. They will pile up into a big mound exposed to the sun, and they will let it cure in the sunlight. It will leach out all the moisture out of it while still retaining the nutrients. It's exactly the same as a farmer putting together a haystack, curing it in the sun, and then storing it in a barn so that the animals can have food throughout the winter months. The food content is still there, just the moisture is removed. And if the moisture is removed, it will not rot. If you try to store this without curing it, it's going to rot, the moisture is going to cause it to decay, and you're not going to have any vegetation to eat. But if you cure it first and then you store it, at that point you have plenty of food to last you through the winter months. So these guys are collecting greenery, they're running with the greenery, piling it in their haystack all day long, and then when they're Haystack dries out, they're carrying the brown vegetation down underground to where they can store it away. And so these guys are constant activity, constant motion, dashing here, there, everywhere, up, down, sideways, moving around as quickly as they possibly can to try and co collect as much as they can in the two to three months in which they live. And so it's a very, very busy little animal for three months of the year. And the rest of the year, they're underneath their rocks, covered with ice and snow, eating their stored vegetation, waiting for springtime, months and months and months away to come again sitting there underneath the rocks in the dark. So just like God has given foresight to a farmer to allow him to know that lean times are coming and so you're going to have to store up food for the winter because at that point you're not going to have enough new green springtime, summertime growth, God has also given to these little animals the ability to plan ahead and give them the foresight they need to know that if they don't work hard, if they're not industrious, if they don't collect enough food, they're not going to make it. And so they are a very, very active little creature going about their business in the tops of the mountains. They are very sensitive to temperatures, and that's why in Yosemite National Park, which is kind of the limit of their range, they are actually dying out because they're at the very tops of the mountains in Yosemite National Park. And as temperature changes and climate change affect various places, it's getting so warm that they're actually losing their habitat and they're dying out in the park because there's nowhere for them higher to go. Every place lower is warmer, and as it, the temperature on the top of the mountain gets warmer, they are actually dying out, and pretty soon there probably won't be any pikas left in Yosemite and other places in the Sierra where they live. So I hope you enjoyed the cute animal section. I hope you enjoyed this very uh, adorable little creature going about his business. And that is because for the conclusion of our program to finish up tonight's meeting, we are going to look at one of my favorite animals, the hognose snake. Now, snakes get a bad rap because everybody considers them to be out to get us and whatnot, even though that's not really true. They consider them to be slimy, even though none of them are actually slimy. They consider them to be aggressive and all this sort of thing, even though very few of them are that way. And so they get a lot of bad raps that doesn't actually have any basis in truth. These are actually one of your best friends to keep your area rodent free. A farmer who's growing his crops is going to lose uh, 25 pounds of grain per year to each live mouse in his crop field, 25 per mouse. And a snake, a live snake out there is going to eat 30 of those mice per year. 
So a single live snake in a farmer's field will save that farmer 750 pounds of grain per year. This is a very useful animal to have around because they are very much helping us to keep the rats and mice from overpopulating and causing us lots of problems. Now we're going to look at a very specific type of snake, the hognose snake. Now you can see why it's called a hognose, because he has this little upturned facial snout, and they are found in the deserts of Arizona and New Mexico across the middle of the country, all the way to the East Coast, several species. The largest species is found in the eastern United States, and that's the one we're going to look at. When we find snakes, we find some are venomous, some are very fast, some are very large, some are camouflaged. All of them have something to help them defend themselves, escape predators, avoid damage, that sort of thing. But this snake, when you look at it, doesn't seem to have any of those things. It doesn't seem to have any way of defending itself from any kind of predator who wants to come across it. When you come across this snake, it just looks like an ordinary little gray snake. No big deal, nothing too fancy. What in the world is so special about that? At this point, however, he's hoping you don't notice him. He's holding perfectly still. Hopefully you have not seen him, and most of the time you won't. You'll walk right by him without ever noticing him, and he'll be able to go across his business without any kind of problem at all. If you see him, if you go toward him, if you start to bother him, at this point he now knows he has to defend himself using the one ability he has to defend himself, and that is acting ability. No other snake has quite the ability to act that this little fella has. This first thing to do is check you out by smelling you. Like we talked about in our last presentation, these guys actually smell using their tongue. Their tongue is brought into their mouth with scent particles on it. They hold it up to an organ in the roof of their mouth, and that's how they smell what's going on around them. So when you see a snake sticking out his tongue at you, he's not being rude. He's actually trying to smell what's happening in the world around him. He smells you. He sees that you're a dangerous predator that might kill him at any moment. So at this point now, he goes into stage one. There are four stages to his acting performance, and stage one is to start to hiss as loudly as possible and to spread out his neck and to assume the form of a very dangerous, possibly cobra-like snake, and escape from you as quickly as possible. So he will now start to move away from you very rapidly, very quickly move away, and at this point, you're, he's hoping you won't pursue him. You're, he's dangerous, he may be poisonous, he may be dangerous, he's gonna try and get you if you, okay, so at this point, now he's trying to crawl away and I prevent him from doing so. Here he is trying to escape. Please let me go. At this point, he decides it's not working. I'm not going to be able to escape, so I'm going to have to go to stage two. Stage one is to get away from you as quickly as possible. Stage two is a lot more aggressive. Stage two is now he coils himself up into one spot, gets himself in prime striking position, and he now starts to open his mouth, get himself ready to go, limber up, ready to strike out and let you know that he's dangerous. He's still hissing very loudly. He's still making a very loud commotion to try and warn you off. At this point now, he opens up his mouth and he begins to strike out in any direction he possibly can, except toward you. Now you may notice, if you're paying attention, why he's not trying to strike toward you. And that is because he doesn't have any really sharp pointy teeth that he can really do any damage to you with. At this point, however, he's hoping you won't notice that and he's now striking out hoping that you will back off in terror because he is the most aggressive, dangerous, hideous possible snake he ever existed on the face of the planet. So, at this point now, like I said, he's using his uh, striking ability in every direction he can. Um, I 
was moving around him. I was putting my hand near him, trying to get him to uh, show off his, uh, his very aggressiveness. You will notice he expels all the air out of his body with each hiss, and then he has to pump itself all back up full of air. At one point during this process, I put my hand where he was not expecting it to be, and he actually made contact with my hand and bounced off. He quickly ducked his head down, hoping I wouldn't notice that he didn't actually do me any damage. I always enjoy watching the audience jump at every single strike. That's always entertaining for me. So here we have, stage two has not succeeded in driving me away. It has been ineffective. I'm still there bothering him. He has not succeeded in chasing me off to other uh, places. And so at this point, he has to think long and hard, but it's come to it. He's going to have to go to stage three. And once you do stage three, there's no turning back. It is the end of the line. He's got to make a choice if he's willing to risk it. And so now at this point, stage three is to suffer a mortal wound at your hand, even if you haven't touched him, and flip himself over and writhe in absolute utter agony at your feet until he finally will die in front of your eyes. And right there, you have a dead snake. Not only does he look like a dead snake, but he also smells like a dead snake. Because when he was in that process of writhing around upon the ground, he was actually exuding a musk from a gland in his tail that he is coating his entire body with. And this musk is so foul smelling that it smells like he's been laying out in the sun for a week. A few minutes, not five minutes after he flipped himself over and began to be, assume this dead position, flies were landing upon his body because they smelled what they assumed to be a dead rotting carcass. So he not only 
looks like a dead snake, but he will now smell like a dead snake. Here, once again, is another of the same species going through his death convulsion. Each individual snake will only do the death convulsion once. Uh, but there, again, you have another dead snake. At this point, stage three is over very quickly. It only lasts for about 30 seconds long. And he is now mouth hanging open, laying dead upon the ground, smelling like a dead snake. And if you don't believe him, maybe you will believe the fact, because he's not only motionless here, but his tongue is hanging out of his mouth. <laughs> and here he is, the ultimate picture of death, mouth open, tongue hanging out, laying upon the sand of the ground, waiting for uh, carry, waiting for a predator to come along, a scavenger to come along and eat him. Now, a scavenger would find this very tasty, but that's not what's been harassing him. A predator has been harassing him, whether it's a dog or a bobcat or you or whatever. It's a not something that wants to eat a rotting carcass because rotting carcasses can have infection, they can have parasites, they can have disease, and so you don't want to mess with it if you're a predator. And so if you're a coyote who's just gone once, seen this, now smells this horrible smelling snake, and you now think, well, this is rotting, this is no good, and it's enough to convince the predator to leave him alone because he's been sitting in the sun, he's been rotting, so he's not going to be something that you want to eat. And so a predator walks off and leaves him alone. So now we are in stage four. Now stage four will last as long as you are in the area watching because he doesn't want to move again until you do one little thing and that is flip him right side up and then he automatically flips himself upside down because apparently the only proper position for a dead snake is to be laying upon his back. <laughs> and so if you flip him right side up, immediately he flips himself immediately back upside down. Now, this doesn't seem like a good idea to us, but that's the way they're built, so that's the way they do it. Now, the second, now they only move twice when they're in stage four. When you flip them right side up, they'll flip upside down. The second movement, however, is much more subtle. He wants to know where you are. He wants to know what you're doing. And so he keeps his eye on you wherever you go. All right? Oh, sorry. Right there, there's his eye watching you. Now, if you move out of his line of sight so that he can no longer see you, he's going to have to turn just enough to be able to keep watching you. And if you move a little bit farther so he can no longer see you, he's going to have to turn a little bit more to be able to see you. I kept moving around him, and he kept tilting his head just enough so he could see me at whatever angle possible so that he could keep his eye on me. And that's the only exception to the rule of not turning over and moving around until the person goes away. Obviously, you can see they're all tightly, you know, they're, they're, they're not spreading their hood anymore. They're not hissing. They're not doing any noises or anything. Because at this point, stage four is just pretend you're dead until your enemy goes away. And once we moved far enough out of sight to be able to get far enough away from him that he could no longer see us, at that point, then he did decide that it maybe was safe to right himself and go about his business. Is it safe yet? I think it's safe. Time to leave. And quickly picking up speed, he escaped back into the bushes and shelter of the safety of, of dense shrubbery. And so, fully convinced of the effectiveness of his acting performance, he crawled off to survive another day because he succeeded and I did not eat him. So here we have a little snake which has no venom, no defenses, no protection of any kind, protecting himself using the one ability that God gave him, and that is acting ability. And they do it better than any other snake anywhere, the ability to play dead and pretend that you are dangerous and effectively 
trying to, in this way, convince your predator to go away. A very special animal that God has made exceedingly special in the way that uh, they have been put together. As we finish up here, I'm going to read from a chapter that you may have already read this week. On Thursday's lesson of today's of the uh, lesson study this week, they had you read the entire chapter of Psalms 104. Now, I'm going to be reading just a few verses of that, and it totally ties in with this week's lessons. Now, it was not planned in any way. It just happened to be a, a week of lessons on nature, but we'll be looking at the same chapter that was in the lesson study. Psalms 104, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, thou art very great, thou art clothed with honor and majesty. Verse 10, he sendeth the springs into the valleys which run among the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field, the wild asses quench their thirst. By them shall the fowls of the heaven have their habitation, which sing amongst the branches. 14, he causeth the grass to grow for the cattle, and herb for the service of man, that he may bring forth food out of the earth. 16. The trees of the Lord are full of sap, the cedars of Lebanon, which he hath planted, where the birds make their nests. As for the stork, the fir trees are her house. The high hills are a refuge for the wild goats, and the rocks for the conies. 20. Thou makest darkness, and it is night, wherein all the beasts of the forest do creep forth. Thou young lions roar after their prey, and seek their meat from God. The sun ariseth, and they gather themselves together, and lay themselves down in their dens. Verse 24. O Lord, how manifold are thy works! In wisdom hast thou made them all. The earth is full of thy riches. So is this great and wide sea, wherein are things creeping innumerable, both small and great beasts. From Fundamentals of Christian Education, page 85. The more the mind dwells upon these themes, the more it will be seen that the same principles run through natural and spiritual things. There is harmony between nature and Christianity, for both have the same author. The book of nature and the book of Revelation indicate the workings of the same divine mind. There are lessons to be learned in nature, and there are lessons, deep, earnest, and all-important lessons to be learned from the book of God. When we look at the animal creation, as we've done a brief sampling of here this morning and this afternoon, we see an endless variety of God's creative power in all its various aspects. And this is just a bare minimum sampling of various different animals. We could do this all day and still have an endless variety to look at. When we look at the animal creation, we are seeing God's testimony of his creative power. And I think it's very important that we use this to testify that God is the creator, that he has made it special, and not just leave it hanging that it's just an intelligent designer somewhere, but that in fact God made it and made it very special. So this has been a very interesting and in-depth look at some very specific and unique animals. What we're going to be doing now is we'll be taking some question and answers, a little break, and then we'll be looking at the predator kingdom to see what they, their purpose in God's creation is, where they came from, and what in the world are they supposed to be here for.